Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. And a good morning from me, Peter Lewis, and a warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday the 13th of April. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, US consumer price inflation fell slightly more than expected in March. The annual inflation rate in the US slowed for a ninth consecutive period to 5% last month. That's the lowest in two years and down from 6% in February. However, core inflation, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, rose from 5.5% in February to 5.6% in March. And minutes from the Federal Open Market Committee's March meeting, released yesterday, showed that US policymakers expected pressure on deposits at several regional banks last month to lead to tighter credit conditions for households and businesses and to weigh on economic activity, hiring and inflation. The minutes also show that last month's 25 basis point rate rise was a tough call, with several FOMC members considering leaving rates on hold. The PBOC reported Wednesday new yuan loans and total social financing data that was well above expectations. All credit channels experienced very strong growth. Total social financing, a broad measure of credit and liquidity in the economy, hit a record for any month of March. And shares in Indonesia's Harita Nikol closed higher on Wednesday after listing on Jakarta's stock exchange in the country's biggest initial public offering of the year. Indonesia is one of the world's hottest IPO markets this year because of a drive by the government to privatise some state-owned enterprises. And the country has recorded more than $2 billion in IPO proceeds so far this year, making it the fourth most active market globally and putting the Southeast Asian country on course to overtake the US IPO market this year in terms of equity fundraising. On today's programme, I'm joined by Lashar, who's Asia Chief Economist at BBVA, and Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks fluctuated on Wednesday after closely watched inflation data fell slightly more than expected. The S&P 500 declined 0.4% to 4,092, having been up 0.6% earlier in the session. The Dow snapped a four-day winning streak, shedding 38 points or 0.1% to 33,646 earlier in the day. The index was up by more than 200 points. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite fell by 0.9% to 11,929. US government debt rallied following the inflation data, but as with stocks, the bid faded as the day wore on. Yields on the more interest rate-sensitive two-year Treasury notes were down 9 basis points at 3.97%. Following the data, Fed Fund futures markets show a 67% chance of a 25 basis point rate increase in May. The US dollar failed to recover from early weakness following the inflation data. Both the yen and the euro were supported by the dollar selling and the move lower in Treasury bond yields. And oil prices hit the highest level since last November. Asian stock markets were mixed on Wednesday. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 rose 0.6%. Trading houses in Japan continue to see gains Wednesday after Warren Buffett said that he raised Berkshire Hathaway's stakes in all five trading houses to 7.4%. Hong Kong stocks 
bucked the positive trend elsewhere in the region, ending the day lower. The Hang Seng slipped 175 points, or 0.9%, to 20,310. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.4% to 3,327. Shares of Tencent tumbled over 5%, the most in 10 weeks amid speculation that its largest shareholder, Process, may speed up its selling of shares in the Chinese technology giant. Process plans to deposit an additional 96 million shares worth about 4.4 billion US dollars or 1% of 10 cents capital into the Hong Kong stock clearing system, a signal that it soon intends to sell the shares. And futures markets are signalling the Hang Seng will tumble around 210 points or 0.8% at the open this morning. You can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog, which is peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us this morning, the Shah who is Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. Morning, Shark. Morning, Peter. And also with us is Nitin Dialdas, who's Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning to you, Nitin. Good morning, Peter. Let's start with that uh, eagerly waited inflation data then from the US. Consumer price inflation, it fell slightly more than expected in March. The annual inflation rate slowed for the ninth consecutive month to 5%. That's the lowest since May 2021. It's down from 6% in February also slightly below market forecasts of 5.2%, helped by food prices, which grew at a slower rate of 8.5%, and energy costs, which fell 6.4%. And core inflation, though, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, rose from a 14-month low of 5.5% in February to 5.6% in March. That's in line with economists' expectations. Um, Shark, I think you can read both positive and negative things into this, can't you, into, the, into this report uh, overnight. But what do you make of it overall? Yeah, I think the overall, I think um, nothing changed. If you look at the data outturned, 5% for this uh, CPI, uh, it's a little bit better than people expected. But the problem is, uh, at this moment, will you continue to hike interest rate or will you just uh, stop here? Uh, I think uh, for central bankers, uh, uh, they are in, still in this uh, dilemma because if they are going to continue hiking interest rate, we already see the uh, signals of this uh, financial instability. Then mm. if you continue to do that one, you will have a higher chance, higher risk of this uh, financial instability. But if we stop here, we know this uh, kind of inflation always stubborn than, than people expected. This uh, 5% around uh, uh, inflation uh, could stay there for a longer time. So I, I have to say that uh, the central bankers, uh, they, uh, it's a little bit embarrassing for them. So they need <laughs> to make the decision, but it's a very hard decision. I think uh, uh, in the rest of the year, they are going to more data dependent. So they will uh, cautiously, cautiously watch for these uh, new data alters and adjust their uh, uh, interest rate adjustment. But in our baseline scenario, we believe they are going to hike interest rate for another time, 25 basis points, and then they will stay there in the rest of the year. But do you think um, they will start cutting as the markets are predicting? Um, as I said, because the inflation is also uh, is always very stubborn, so if they commit to this inflation control uh, commitment target, I think uh, there's a little chance for them to uh, reduce interest rate in the rest of the year. 
Nitin, what, what do you read into this? Is it positive? Is it negative? How, how do you see it overall? Well, I think it's very neutral. I mean, like you said, there's some positives, there's some negatives. Um, but ultimately, I think, as Shark was saying, it's about the interest rates, and that's what people are looking at the inflation data at the moment. And the reality is the Fed, it doesn't care what's going on in Wall Street. They are just bothered about the inflation number. And until that inflation number comes down to, say, about it's targeted one, two, two and a half, three percent, like they always have been targeting for the last 20 years, they're going to continue to monitor that interest rate and re- and raise it. So I'm on the camp that there will be a 25 basis point rise um, in the next meeting. And um, I actually think that they'll still monitor it beyond that. And if it stays at this five to, you know, if you take, let's go core, forget about the 5% because energy costs we know are going to keep coming down over the next 12 months. Um, if you take the core number at five point six percent, that's still too high for them, mm-hmm. and they need to raise. They need to that's raise. The problem, just, isn't yeah, it? And it's, that's the it's problem. Coming down, but coming down quite slowly. Do, yeah. do you think then overall it is the Fed winning its fight against inflation? Not really. <laughs> I mean, if, if we if we think about this, this has been going on there for for a year. Um, we, this started with the wall, and it's been very high for that year. At this point, you know, over a year into the war, you would have expected that the inflation number would have come down by now, but it hasn't. So mm-hmm. for me, I don't think they're winning it. But also, I think people are also a bit hung up and they're a bit like drag, drug addicts, I think is the best way of putting it. <laughs> In the sense, everyone's fascinated with this really low interest rate environment. But mm-hmm. take away the last, strip away the last 20 years. Where we're at today would actually have been considered a low interest rate in the previous 100 years. Mm. So the reality is, even though we're only at 4.75 4. to 5%, that to us is normal interest rates or what it should be if you take the whole history of the finance system as opposed to just taking the last 20 years, where 0% is not normal. And that's it not it all started in the global financial crisis, really, didn't yeah, it? When correct. central banks decided on in effect, financial repression. That's what they've been doing. And we've got so used to that that we we get a bit shocked when interest rates go up even half a a percent. Exactly. Like I said, drug addicts. (laughs) What what do you think, Shark? Do you think the Fed is winning? I I think this uh, is a very good question. So I think eventually Fed, they are going to win. So this kind of inflation, they will slow down. But the problem is uh, uh, at what pace and uh, at what cost? So mm. now we're already paying the cost of this uh, financial instability, okay? If these things continue for longer and they cannot make a final decision to control this uh, inflation, maybe we will see more uh, financial turmoil in the market. Yeah. Oh, mm. Another one is uh, how long we, we can expect that this kind of inflation can slow down. Uh, if this one continue for another year, maybe many things will change. Right. Well, the, the Fed has sort of raised the issue of the cost of this, didn't it, in, in the minutes? Because for the first time now, it's talking about a mild recession um, later on this year. Now, presumably, the Fed always underestimates the extent of any f- recession in its own economy. Does this mean that we are going to see um, a severe recession, maybe? Uh, maybe. <laughs> OK, so I agree with your point that people always underestimate the risk we are facing. Uh, but uh, hopefully... Uh, if uh, uh, th- we are going to see this uh, mild or not that serious uh, recession, so this kind of inflation can can be cracked. But mm. uh, we need to be careful because uh, uh, we have seen some episode in history that even this recession is already very serious. 
and then the inflation <laughs> also stay at a relatively high high level. So we must be careful. So stagflation, about that yes. stagflation is the exactly. is the risk. The, the, the problem is. Um, this and this is, although you know, yes, inflation is coming down. When you look at core inflation, it's still pretty sticky, isn't it? At five and a half percent, that's not really consistent with the Fed's two percent target, and it sort of also suggests maybe that price pressures are sort of broadening out in the economy a bit. Yeah, I mean, if you, as I said, take out energy prices, which are down, um, and that's the reason why we're at five percent as opposed mm. to you know. So when we look at the core at five point six, that's way too high. And it is very sticky. Uh, you're looking, and I think also, you know, you talk about the recession. The reality is, again, just taking a step back and looking at the actual overall picture, the economy is not doing badly. Hence the reason mm. why we're at 5.6%. Housing prices are still going up. Um, there's a number of, you know, unemployment's relatively low. Um, so overall, the economy itself is not doing too badly. And that's why you've got such high inflation. It's not you normally, I mean, when it started a year ago, it was down a lot to the energy prices because of the war, like I said, energy mm-hmm. prices spiked. But now you're seeing all the follow throughs um, and they're remaining at, at quite high levels. And I think that's the big concern. And it's interesting because will there be a recession at all? Will you know, ha- that's going to see how it plays out. Mm. But um, at the moment, again, like I said, you take a step back, the economy is actually doing quite well. That's the reason why we've got such high inflation. Mm. So, I mean, yeah. The Atlanta Fed is predicting gr- uh, first quarter growth of around 2.2%. That, that's, that's pretty, pretty good, isn't yeah. it, really? But if, if there is then going to be a recession, that means there's got to be also quite a sharp pullback later in the year. Yeah, and I know, you know, the last minutes were at the time when First National Bank and SVB and all these other banks were having a, look, a few issues. Hence the reason they're calling for the you know minor recession because they're looking at what's going on in that financial uh, market or the financial system. Now, at the moment, we haven't had massive follow through. Uh, although I am a bit cautious in when I say that because I do think there will be some more repercussions in the next say few months. But at that time, there were a number of headwinds which seems to have tailed off for now. And it'll be interesting to see what they say in the next minutes because that financial system, you know, the Fed had to pull out enough uh, lending to, uh, or enough borrowing for or the banks took enough borrowing from the Feds uh, to help themselves for that period. But then let's see what happens going forward and how they're going to repay all that. And that's going to be where it becomes quite interesting. You said there's going to be some repercussions. What what sort of repercussions are we going to see? Well, I think as I said, I, I, I'm still quite worried about regional banks i think the big banks they're, they're going to be okay but i think the regional banks and a lot of people in the states for example um do rely on those regional banks i think that's where you're going to start seeing some of the repercussions is if you do see a couple of those start going under as well then you'll see start seeing the follow through and it will it will hurt the main economy um and like i said i don't think we're over that whole financial system i don't think it was just two banks let's put it this way which needed to collapse, and then we, we go forward like nothing happened. Um, I do think there, you know, there are other banks that are probably facing some challenges that we probably don't know about yet, and that's going to be where it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the next few months. Shark, how much has the um, has the problems in the financial sector damaged the economy overall? I think I fully agree with Nitin on this point. I'm still worried about these financial instability issues because if you look at history, if you keep this low interest rate for longer term, you will have problems of a bubble. 
Okay, I said bubbles. But if you keep this high interest rate for longer time, you will have these、uh, bubble burst scenarios.、Mm-hmm. In fact, last year we already seen、uh, this、uh, pension fund in UK. We、uh, they have crash. Oh, we always seen this、uh, digital asset. They have a crash, right? Now we have these、uh, regional banks in United States. They have a problem. I think that it's、uh, quite related. Not only. Just related to individual banks' management or mismanagement by themselves, but it is related to the financial、uh, condition because、uh, they have been tightening monetary policy in such a fast way, and then there must be some we can see weaker financial institutions. They are exposed to this、uh, huge risk, and this is not. Individual, I know. Maybe we can solve this regional bank's problem by inject more liquidity, by provide this universal、uh, <laughs> deposit protection for them,、uh, for all these banks. But problem is the financial inst-、uh, sector is so big. So they can't afford that, though, can they? You couldn't possibly guarantee every single yeah, deposit in every and, bank. And in this the- kind of the、uh, pressure, this kind of risk, can shift to other part of the financial institutions. So. I'm still worried about this、uh, possibility. And it's down to the consumers, isn't it? At the end of the day, they've budgeted at a zero, one, or one and a half percent interest, and now all of a sudden they've got to pay five percent interest.、Yeah. That's a lot more out of their pocket. And you've got to, you, you know, you give and take, right? If you're going to have to put more into paying that mortgage, you're then scrapping off or taking off something else that you would spend on.、Mm-hmm. So eventually, it all comes around, and you just say you throw in the towel at a certain point, right? If interest rates get too high, and I think. That's why I'm a bit worried about the regional banks. It's really on that side of it. Okay, let's turn our attention to China because we've had some more data overnight on、um, credit growth. The PBOC reported Wednesday new yuan loans and total social financing data well above expectations. All credit channels experienced very strong growth. New yuan loans in March totaled 3.89 trillion yuan, compared with consensus of 3.3. Outstanding yuan loan growth rose 11.8 percent. Total social financing, which is a broad measure of credit and liquidity in the economy, was 5.387 trillion yuan in March. Well above consensus as well, and that was a record high for a month of March.、Um, Shark, this this is all very unusual, isn't it? Really, you you tend to see strong loan growth at the beginning of the year in January and February,、um, and then it tends to tail off in March, but not this time.、Uh, yes, I think、uh, now it shows the the, the economy is、uh, in a recovery, and we do see this、uh, kind of the demand that they are coming back. So for the enterprises,、uh, even for these、uh, household sectors, they are coming back. And also, we know that、uh, the authorities、uh, they try to encourage this bank to lend more. Yeah,、uh, as far as I know, they try to encourage bank to extend more mortgage loans because、uh, now the housing market is still in in trouble. They want、mm. to use these、uh, credit measures、uh, to stimulate the the housing sector. But overall, I think uh, uh, this uh, strong uh, credit uh, growth they show both. The strong supply side and demand side. I think this is a good good sign.、Uh, in the future, we do expect that this kind of the credit growth will、uh, push the、uh, recovery to a faster track. Yeah. Do you think though that、um, is, could it also be a signal that the very fact that the PBOC has to pump so much credit into the economy, so much liquidity into the economy, you, the converse of that is that maybe the underlying economy is not so strong. Uh, yes, I know that many people argue that uh, the 
uh, economy is not that strong. So the authorities, they, they just pump in too, too much liquidity. Uh, but I think um, if you look at the service sector, you can see very strong uh, growth, right? Mm. Uh, at the same time, uh, if you talk to the people, uh, I do feel that the dem- they have a strong demand. It's not only just uh, for supply side. Uh, on demand side, we do see the signals. Uh, the economy is coming back. The, the, the demand for credit is coming back. Too. And, and how much of this is going into infrastructure spending and, and local government spending? Is that a big part of it? Yeah, definitely. I think that beginning of this recovery stage uh, must a uh, large share of this credit go to the inf- infrastructure investment. Uh, but I like to say, uh, to some degree, that's a pent-up demand as well, because mm. of this infrastructure uh, investment now at the beginning of the year, they just exit this uh, pandemic-related r- uh, restrictions. Everything is doable now. So that's why mm. we have seen they invest a lot in the infrastructure sector. Yeah. Nisid, how, how do you read this from a, a market perspective then? Is it a sign that the PBOC is willing to support, uh, you know, the economy and, and ease policy if, if necessary? Or is it a sign of weakness? I think it's the former in the sense they are willing to support the economy. But I have a lot of concerns. I mean, you've got a situation where we've all been reading about credit issues in, this, in China for the last few years, whether it's property developers, whether it's some of the smaller banks, and here we are, extending more and more credit. Mm. And that's, again, yeah, at some point, you know, it's great. You're constantly kicking the can down the road. But at some point, someone's got to pay for all of this. And mm. that's where you start getting worried. Now, yes, we're coming out of the COVID situation and China's just opening up. So you want to get things kick-started. I get that. Um, but I, I'm actually quite worried about where that whole credit situation is in China and, and I, I do feel at some point it's going to implode. It's just, again, a question of when. And you can't keep kicking the can down the road for hundreds of years. At some point, as I said, someone's got to pay for it and someone's got to you know, mm. fund it. And, I, and that's going to be the question when. This, this isn't, doesn't really help the consumer, though, does it? The, the, the whole problem with the Chinese economy is you want consumption, which is what, Shark, I think it's about a quarter of the economy at the moment, isn't it? You want it to be much higher, but this doesn't get the economy to where it needs to be when you're pumping this sort of liquidity, this sort of credit into the system. It's not really getting the consumer to spend and it's not really getting consumption up as a bigger percentage of the economy overall. Uh, not directly, but I like to say that if you have a, a big credit growth that will support this investment project that will boost people's income, and then this kind of the income will transform into these new spendings for how, uh, ho- uh, household sector. So I think that's uh, why I'm not that worried about this uh, credit problem at this moment. I fully agree with uh, uh, Nitin that in future we need to worry about who's going to pay for this kind of debt. For, for this <laughs> it's but always not, in future though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, that, that's not a problem we should worry about at this moment because remember that the Chinese economy have suffered for three years of the pandemic, right? So mm. now they just... Uh, come out of these uh, restrictions. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, now we would like to see uh, they have a strong uh, credit growth to put the economy back to the right track. But, uh, you know, my argument on that is I agree with you. I, they need to do this at this moment because of whether, what they've done over, and what's happened over the last three years. Um, but the demographics as well don't support it. You know, we talk about let's build homes or let's build infrastructure, let's do all this. Mm -hmm. But you've got a shrinking population at this point. So what are you building? I know you need to upgrade certain things, 
Um, but you don't need to build whole new cities anymore. You know what I mean? And that's where I start getting worried. It's just, you, are you doing this just to inflate numbers for the sake of inflating numbers to hit a target of 5.2% growth? That's the question. You know, or is it actually needed? And that's a part you'll know a lot better than I would, Shark. I'm not, you know, pleading to know what's going on in there, but that's the part that I think needs to match up. Are they going to meet their, I suppose they will meet their 5% growth target, won't they? Because they'll make sure of it. But we had the IMF, um, Pierre-Oliver Gorinchas, the uh, the IMF's chief economist, talking about supercharged growth in China. Are you seeing that? Is is growth supercharged? (laughs) No, I don't think they're supercharged. But uh, come back to Nitin's pro- uh, uh, question. I think um, now even for this uh, infrastructure investment, China, they have already shifted their direction. In the past, they built a lot of a bridge, built a lot of the roads. But now they invest in this uh, data center. They invest yeah. in many uh, ESG, green-related projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe in future, they will invest uh, in how to stimulate people to give more birth. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, that's another mm-hmm. direction. But they are changing now. Yeah. For this infrastructure investment, that, mm-hmm. that's true. Uh, but on China, I think uh, even they achieve that five uh, percent or even even higher. I think that just a normal rebound from this uh, yeah. pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, it's relatively anemic if you consider that they've been targeting five percent over a period of time, and the last three years they haven't even met that. So now you're just going back to normal, as opposed to supercharged would be above normal or above me. I mean, and I don't, they're not getting that, so. To me, it's not supercharged. If the economy is is strong, why, why is inflation so weak um, in in China? I know that you know in some ways you want to see low inflation. Well, you, you don't want to see high inflation, that's for sure. But in China, um, we had the data out uh, earlier this week that shows the consumer price index just 0.7 percent and PPI producer prices slipping further into deflation. That's not really a sign of a, a strong economy, is it? Uh, definitely. Uh, if you look at the inflation figure in China, I think that there's uh, two problems. The first one, uh, the service sector is very good. But uh, if you look at the service uh, uh, price, uh, they continue to uh, to increase. But for the manufacturing goods, they are not that good. Uh, I think that the first problem is uh, export. Now, many countries, they expect they're going to have a recession. They cut their export orders. That's why the Chinese uh, manufacturing goods now perform that good. Uh, another one is, uh, I think, uh, uh, we still need time. We're just uh, two, months after, two months out of this uh, kind of uh, pandemic things. Mm-hmm. So the uh, enterprise, they are going enterprise, they want to make investments, they want to buy more things, but they are still waiting. They want to see the clear signal of this uh, growth become better, and then they will uh, make their investment. So uh, I don't think now the performance, I have to say, the the performance of the economy is uh, super good for China. But now they are picking up. They, this uh, normal recovery uh, but, uh, recovery uh, process, but now we are still at the beginning stage of this recovery. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, um, the manufacturing though is also shifting away from China. I mean, Apple, Foxconn building factories in India mm. um, and US. Apple as well. Yeah, Apple. You know, so it's not necessarily just a case that it's, you know, recession driven. And like I said, economies generally are actually quite okay. Um, it's a fear of a recession. It's a fear of a slowdown. It's a fear of, you know, this banking side. But again, when you take the overall numbers, the economies have actually been okay. And it, it's, I think it's more a reflection over the fact manufacturing shifting away. 
Mm. Um, the garments have moved to Bangladesh, Vietnam. Um, High tech's moved to India, US, um, Mexico. So I think that's actually more a reflection on the manufacturing figures and why they're so weak. Put this all together for us then for the markets. Well, it seems to me the key thing at the moment now that investors are focusing on, or maybe two key things, is the Fed going to carry on raising interest rates? Maybe one more time, but, but whatever it is, it must be pretty close to the end, mustn't it? And is the US going to slip into a recession? And it seems now we've the market psychology has changed at the beginning of the year. Bad economic data was seen as good news for the markets because... Um, it meant the Fed wasn't going to raise rates. Now bad news is also bad for the markets because people seem to be f- uh, focusing on this recession angle. So so what do you do as investors? You're, you're really torn at the moment, aren't you? Um, I think answering each question in, in itself, interest rates, yes, will rise 25 basis points and probably stop there for a while. Um, and I think they'll monitor beyond that. The chances of a recession... I'm still torn, as I said. I think you've got to come down quite quickly in order to get the recession this year. So mm-hmm. maybe it might be able to push it out to a bit later. Um, and therefore, I think overall, when things settle down, the markets would be a good place to go to. But at the moment, you'd probably want to be a bit cautious, either hold some cash. I mean, look, you're, you're actually getting interest in cash these days. You know, um, <laughs> think, think about that. That's and novel, isn't people it? Have First time about. for a while. Yeah, people have gone about for, you know, again, for the last 15, 20 years. Cash can actually earn you some money. And so I'd probably leave it in deposits uh, for now and then wait uh, until things settle down and then probably go back into the market. So. Yeah, for me, maybe a little bit of gold, right? So you are facing mm. high... Yeah. Above $2,000 now, yeah. almost a record high. Yes, exactly. I think uh, they performed very good over the past uh, several weeks. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, great to have your thoughts. Thank you both very much for coming in this morning. You heard there the Shah, who is Asia Chief Economist from BBVA Research, and Nitin Dialdas, who is Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. <laughs> I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, China indicated yesterday it will maintain pressure on Taiwan following the end of its three days of military drills in retaliation for Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen stopping off in the US last week on her return from a trip to Central America and meeting with US House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Zhu Fenlian, whose spokeswoman for the Taiwan Affairs Office in Beijing, said yesterday we will not leave any room for any form of Taiwan separatist activities. Um, so, Ross, what did uh, Tsai Ing-wen's visit and stopover in the U.S. achieve? Uh, well, it, it uh, was certainly good for the Chinese military, I guess. It gave them a chance to uh, show some of their capabilities and conduct some very large-scale military exercises. Uh, from the perspective of Taiwan, and there's the basic part of the, of the trip, which was to visit two countries that still have diplomatic relations, Guatemala and Belize. There would have been a third one, Honduras, but unfortunately for Taiwan, Honduras terminated those relations a few weeks before. And then this, the transit visits, uh, per the tradition, uh, there's always meetings with American politicians, members of Congress, 
sometimes municipal leaders. Uh, there's always visits with think tanks and scholars. And uh, the, the, the nature of the public activities tends to vary when the Taiwan president makes these transit stops. Sometimes there's a big gala dinner with the Taiwanese-American community, public speeches at, at think tanks as well. Uh, but for this particular transit stop, clearly the, the big moment was the in-person meeting with House Speaker McCarthy. And there's some really interesting aspects in history there. So when the when the Taiwan president has made transit stops before uh, going back years, there's been phone calls with the House Speaker. Tsai Ing-wen had a phone call with Nancy Pelosi, for example, during a transit of the U.S. in 2019. But this was the first face-to-face meeting uh, in the U.S. Obviously, Pelosi was here in Taipei last year, so that was a, a in-person meeting here in Taiwan. Uh, but again, for the Taiwan government, for, for Tsai Ing-wen, really the, the big moment was getting the the House Speaker to to meet face to face. He had t- talked a lot about coming here to following Pelosi and come here, and you know, him being a Republican and Pelosi being a Democrat. You know, it really bothers McCarthy that he didn't come here uh, mm-hmm. physically yet or in person. There's probably some reasons why he ultimately decided not to come here in person, uh, at least in, in the you know the first half of of this year. But again, for the Taiwan government, the, the, it really was uh, getting to say we met the House Speaker on U.S. soil. It doesn't seem to be over, though, yet, does it? Because although the, these military exercises, the three days of military exercises, have finished, um, yesterday China's Ministry of Commerce said it's launched a trade barrier investigation into what it calls Taiwan's restrictive measures on almost 2,500 um, mainland products. Now, now what, that, what is that all, ab- all about? Yeah, that that's a really interesting point as well because last week when 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 China announced the military exercises, a lot of people rushed to say, "Oh well, it's only going to be three days, so it's not going to be as big a deal. It's not going to be mm-hmm. as dangerous. Uh, it doesn't involve as many asset military assets as what what China did last August in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit." Uh, other people who've seen seen uh, or observed this over longer time, including myself, said, whoa, slow down there. First, uh, we, we don't know exactly what military assets will be deployed at the moment they announce a three-day. You know, a three-day uh, exercise could be pretty intense and pretty scary and a big threat to Taiwan as well. But the other thing was to say – it's not just the military exercises, right? China has a number of tools that they could use. Uh, economic trade retaliation, this is an example of it. Uh, diplomacy, getting Macron to say what Macron said, uh, persuading another country to terminate diplomatic relations in the coming months is certainly another possibility as well. Uh, audits of Taiwan companies in China, uh, slow, slow walking regulatory approvals for Taiwan companies in China, right? So there, there are a number of, of tools that China could use. And obviously, they're not going to take them out all at once and show them uh, by, by way of retaliation. There was also another one yesterday, which seems to be in flux a bit, but this was a, a no-fly zone that made uh, a lot of news in, uh, around 12, 14 hours ago that, there, that China was imposing a no-fly zone uh, north of Taiwan Island, and it was going to be for two-plus days. And then there was subsequent news that it's been reduced to 27 minutes on April 16th. Uh, so again, I think the key point here is don't people shouldn't just focus on the military exercise and think that uh, uh, a few planes flew a few ships sailed okay it's over everybody went back home that is clearly not the case and uh, ultimately and especially for business community investors uh, we got to be looking seriously at what geopolitical risks exist when doing business or investing in taiwan
Well, President Macron was talking about that, wasn't he? He was complaining, basically, about the fact that, you know, European companies get sanctioned and uh, have to follow US sanctions um, on, on Chinese companies. But that visit became rather controversial, didn't it? And sort of almost overshadowed, well, it did overshadow everything else that was going on because he talked about Taiwan and said Europe shouldn't really get involved, um, get dragged into this issue, which is a US-China um, issue. And, and he was blaming the US as much as China for the tensions in the Taiwan Straits and has, has really got panned in the media for this. Oh, my gosh. My high school French teachers are going to kill me for not being able to insert like a proper expression in French here about, you know, kind of along the lines of, uh, you know, Sakura Blue, you know, like, oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, he's probably regrets making those statements about Taiwan. Uh, and the, the enormous amount of criticism that he's receiving is, is if we could try and simplify it, you know, it's, it's along the lines of how could you say that about the democratic country that's under threat from China, even though uh, most of the critics come from countries that don't even recognize Taiwan as a country. Uh, but that, that's basically what the criticism is. You know, you've kind of given in to the authoritarian who's threatening Taiwan. Um, but uh, it's, it, it's not that simple, right? I, you know, he and subsequently the uh, de facto French embassy here in Taipei they issued a statement because uh, there's an angry public and media here in Taiwan to say France's policies towards Taiwan hasn't changed, and that's ultimately what it comes down to, right? France's policy towards Taiwan, like a lot of other places, for many decades has been we'll do business with Taiwan, we'll have cultural relations with Taiwan, uh, we, we we discourage the use of force, uh, but. Uh, France hasn't sold Taiwan any weapons in the last 30 years. And that, those two transactions for Mirage fighter jets and Lafayette frigates was mired in corruption. Uh, and uh, unlike the U.S., which sort of has a commitment to uh, defend Taiwan, but not really, I mean, France has never made that kind of commitment anyway. So uh, when they say like our policy hasn't changed, there is an element of, of truth to that as well. Uh, but we'll see how this plays out, because there's been a lot of European support for Taiwan, mostly members of parliament, uh, national parliaments or, or members of the European parliament, a lot of statements, resolutions. They're visiting here. Um, a couple of countries have made substantive changes to their relationship in Taiwan, but not really the major countries. So that's the thing to watch. Well, what is France uh, and not members of parliament, but the national government or Germany or Italy or even the UK is no longer in the EU. What are they really willing to do uh, for Taiwan? And again, for example, are they going to send weapons? Are they going to send their Navy through the Taiwan Strait multiple times a year, not once every couple of years? Those are really the things to watch. And I guess Macron is basically saying, again, our policy on those kinds of things is not about to change. It seems that President Xi does want to try and improve relations with Europe, with the EU. He doesn't want it to go the same way as US-China uh, relations. Can he do that? Can he build relations with the EU as long as um, he seems to be, to many Europeans anyway, siding with Russia in the Ukraine war? It's difficult. Uh, we saw signals of an attempt to do this during the COVID period. So uh, even during kind of we'll just call it the extended lockdown period of the last couple of years, you'd still periodically uh, uh, see statements by Chinese officials or meetings with with European businesses in China, you know, encouraging them, kind of kind of trying to make an effort to say we welcome your investment, but. It, we, this is such a multi-track issue, right? I mean, obviously, there, there, there's the, the public relations risk of, of 
most foreign companies, including European companies, uh, of doing business in China. So there is going to be criticism globally or, or within their own uh, countries. And then there's the functional issues, uh, things like lockdowns, things like changing regulations. And we all know what happened in the tech industry in the last couple of years. Uh, so there, there are all these risks. On the other hand, we have Chinese officials saying, uh, you're, you know, we welcome you to do business. Uh, and some companies, uh, they have a lot of experience doing business in China. We just think about mm-hmm. the European automakers have a lot of experience, uh, for example. Uh, so you know, some companies are OK with the risks. They're able to manage them. And in fact, they're basically saying we still want to be there and we want to try and make money there. And we see that manifest itself with the large business delegations uh, that accompany Scholz last October and accompany Macron this time. And there'll probably be some more European leaders as well come, come in from China. And finally, let me quickly ask you about another visitor to China this week. Uh, Brazil's president, Lula da Silva, he arrived um, yesterday. Now, Brazil and China have already got pretty strong trade and investment uh, relations, haven't they? In fact, Brazil is one of those rare countries, one of the few countries in the world that actually runs a trade surplus uh, with, with China. Most large countries have trade deficits uh, with, with China. And China is also a big investor uh, particularly into its power uh, sector. So how important is this visit and, and what does President Xi aim uh, to achieve from this? Well, of course, there's the business relationship. And as, as you mentioned, you know, China having having the, the trade deficit and Brazil's got stuff that China wants, especially in the, in, in the agriculture space. Uh, for Lula, he's going to come in for a lot of criticism, not so much domestically, but uh, certainly from the United States. Uh, people saying, like, your priorities are wrong. You're, you're not talking about human rights. You're, you you want to walk away from the dollar. Uh, you're putting putting yourself at a lot of risk. Unfortunately for the Biden administration, I would have said the same thing about the Trump administration, even the Obama administration before that. It's like so many other places in the world, Africa, uh, for example, the Pacific Island countries. You talk, but you're rarely there. So President Biden, if you really want to improve the relationship uh, or get South America to to, – Listen a little bit more to the U.S. Be there. Don't 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 be patronizing and try and improve the relationship. Otherwise, uh, these countries will look for a, a more accommodating partner. Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Thank you to my guests this morning and thank you for listening. Tomorrow, we'll have the latest business and finance news as Asian markets open. And joining me to discuss those headlines are Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Kenny Wen, Head of Investment Strategy at KGI Asia. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.